to the Burnout Podcast, where we discuss all things agile software development and delivery. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques. We'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide needed inspiration. Hi, I'm Todd Anderson, Consultant Delivery Manager. I've done just about every job in IT, from tech support, programmer, network security, project and program management. I can't say I've done everything, but I've seen a lot. And I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, business analyst and product owner. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the block. And this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax and settle in for this week's episode. All right, before we get started this week, just a plea and a quick announcement. So please, please, please share our podcast with anybody you think might be interested. That includes internal networks or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. And please do rate us, uh, rate us well, please, or give us, let us know if you, there's something you don't like. Um, that would really help us out. Spread the word. And we'll also have a uh, Ask Me Anything episode coming up. And as we're really bored writing letters to ourselves, if you have any questions that um, you are interested in discussing with us, please uh, send us questions, um, which we will then uh, include in the episode and uh, answer. And on with this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of The Burn-Up. Today, Todd and I will be talking about the role of the delivery manager or the scrum master. Um, We'll do a separate episode on program management after this. So today we want to focus on the specifics of leading and managing a team. Todd, can you outline for us how you see the role of the delivery lead or the scrum master? Yeah, so uh, I think the end of the day, a delivery leader or scrum master is there to, as it says on the tin, make sure delivery happens, right? And, yeah. and how, how you do that is typically by managing risk and removing blockers for the team. So I you're say, facilitating, right? You're, you're facilitating yeah. delivery. You're, you're not necessarily doing the delivery yourself, although a lot of times I've had some hands-on experience <laughs> actually writing some code to get some things out the door. But what your, your, your role there is to, to facilitate delivery at the end of the day. And um, what that really means is you sit in between the business and the team themselves, and a lot of times you're you're representing the business to the team, and you're also representing the team to the business. So, in in some ways, they're kind of a shit shield. <laughs> I'd, I'd say, um, you know, to make sure that that unnecessary things don't land on the team that come come sometimes from outside outside forces. Uh, but you also want to make sure the team is aware of things happening in the business mm-hmm. so they can make decisions on their day-to-day. So, so, so really, it's about removing these blockers, removing these distractions, identifying, uh, you know, identifying issues that could arise and managing them appropriately, making sure that every, it's well communicated to anybody that needs to know these issues might arise and, and, and help to manage it, talk to other teams, talk to stakeholders, and make sure things are clicking along. So it's really about the flow of delivery. Mm-hmm. Something we should maybe talk about, um, as we said, we will do a separate episode about program management, but I think it would be worth quickly pointing out what's the difference between a program manager, a project manager, a delivery lead, 
and a Scrum Master? I think those four, because there are differences and they're kind of the same to a certain degree. So how would you understand those roles? Yeah, so a program manager, I think, is a more distinct role than the other the other ones. Interesting, because, okay. Because a, a program manager is looking at an entire program of work. You're looking at multiple projects. And again, I think we'll touch on this in another episode. Yeah. But that's, that's a way higher level. So it's more strategic? It's more strategic delivery. You're, you're not necessarily getting into the day-to-day outcomes of a project, but you're, you're make, making sure projects can operate. So, so instead of removing blockers for teams, you're removing blockers for entire projects. So you're looking at value streams or the outcome of multiple streams of work projects that happen under the hood, and you make sure that they all together, dependencies and whatever, they, the connection points they have, that that goes in the right direction yeah, and delivers yeah. so, stuff. So, right? so you're trying to deliver an entire service or something, and you have outcomes at a program level. So you're trying to make sure all the, you know, you're still looking at blockers, you're still looking at yeah. dependencies, it's just that when you're bumping it up to that level. Yeah. And you're usually working with a whole group of stakeholders, a much higher level group of stakeholders, a lot more senior stakeholders typically. You're usually facilitating program management meetings or steer codes, and you're making sure that that happens at a higher level. So, you know, you're getting a lot more into strategic things. You're working with um, uh, heads of operations, you know, yes. CTOs, uh, COOs. You're working uh, with with the whole program to make sure the organization is is going in the right direction. So, so program management, I would set aside as something different. I, I would think that would be something that more a more experienced delivery manager would, would get into eventually. Yes. It's Agreed. usually a more experienced role because you're just tying together a lot more more yep. things. You know, you're dealing with more senior people. So a delivery lead or delivery manager or project manager, or whatever you call it as opposed to a scrum master is maybe a, a, a slight bump up from a scrum master so mm-hmm. so so maybe maybe that does sit in between a program manager and a scrum master in in that you might be looking at more work streams within a team so like maybe you go to scrum master a scrum master is maybe looking at just one team's backlog right. and, and they're trying to drive it through right and that might be a, you know a team of you know 10 you know 8 or 10 people or whatever um, and just making sure delivery gets driven through. So you're facilitating that team's that day-to-day team's work, thing, right? right? And, yeah. yeah, Scrum Master. Whereas a maybe delivery lead um, or delivery manager, you might be slightly stepping, you might still be doing that work. You might be still looking at a team and driving that through, but you also might be elevated. Uh, you might be orchestrating multiple teams or, as well, right? orchestrating multiple yeah. teams, right? But, but still within a program of work. So. I mean, what I would also say is I, I haven't seen many Scrum Masters look at budgets, uh, resourcing forecasts in great detail, whereas I think that's yeah. more the delivery lead project I, manager I side. I don't want to get in trouble here because I think, I, I actually do think that that can be used fairly interchangeably because I, I, think, I think some organizations do use Scrum Masters. In that way? Okay. In that way. They, they right. might be delivery leads, but they call them scrum masters as a component because they come from a scrum background, right? Yes. Okay. So, so you know, if an organization has a scrum ba- background, they're more likely to use scrum master as a term to mean something more more general. Uh, whereas, if you're just coming from a just agile background or whatever, and you're using lean or whatever, you might not even use the, the term scrum um, or you know yes. or whatnot. I, I do think some scrum masters get into that delivery. Interesting. Okay. Role. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a lot of overlap, and, and and delivered leads also get into the weeds sometimes, where you actually get into a team and you're actually 
looking at the board and depending on the size of your team or what you're doing, you're driving delivery at that story level. I think it's interesting you say this because I've seen the extreme other end where a team didn't have a Scrum Master at all as such. It was just that some individual in that team, every sprint, a different individual would kind of facilitate and unblock for that team. So the Scrum Master role was something that would organically emerge out of that team and someone would be like, oh, this week I'm helping the team and the next week would be someone else. Um, but I think what we need to be mindful of is that, and I think you would agree with that, is that um, what you need is a role, someone who helps the team on, on a day-to-day shop floor basis to facilitate. And if you have multiple teams and a slightly bigger uh, project, say, um, or a combination of teams working against the product, you might need someone higher up to orchestrate those efforts. And in, the more complex this becomes... At that point, you might need to think about having multiple people doing those roles because one person can't. You can't be a developer facilitating your team, looking after budgets, and some other teams as well. That just doesn't work, right? Yeah, yeah and I think it's good for team members to all have that delivery hat on and, and maybe try out the role because yeah. you know there could be developers that could be really good at delivery. You know, A lot of times, business analysts t- tend to wear that, that dual hat of business analyst, scrum master. And, and it's really good for people to be delivery focused. So I think having everybody aware of that skill and be able to play that role is really good. But it's important that somebody is playing that role. Yeah. I think that's that's the important thing from that sort of scrum master perspective. So yeah, I think it's really great when, when, when teams get involved because delivery is what it's all about. Yes, there is a bit of a risk that uh, some delivery leads or scrum masters might become kind of too commanding and, you know, I think there is this balance to be found between, as you said, shielding the team, being kind of a servant to the team to a certain respect while providing guidance, but at the same time, we still want our teams to be client-facing. A servant to the team. You don't. You absolutely don't want to dictate to the team. The team, the team is the one doing the work. You're, you're trying to make sure that they can do that work. They're the ones that are best placed to decide how they do that work. So... Although you might have an opinion about how things go, you, you only have an opinion. You only have one voice in the team. And at the end of the day, you know, you need to collaboratively decide how to go forward. Although you're managing, you're managing the project, not necessarily the people. It's not a military structure where you, you, you issue commands, but you may issue strong guidance to help people if they're confused or so they don't know what to do. But you're not determining, as you said, how they how they should work on a day-to-day basis. That's yeah. not, not what this is about, right? And I've also been in situations where I've been a line manager as well as a delivery lead, but in my mind, they're kind of two separate hats. I mean, they still have a lot of overlapping aspects where you, you want to solicit feedback and, and, yeah. and have good culture and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you're a team member and you have a certain role on that team. You're not dictating how the team works. Cool. Let's talk about the what, what makes a good delivery lead or a good scrum master. What are, what are personality traits or... Um, soft factors that we would expect someone in that role to to have or to hold? Typically, a, a good delivery manager, I think, has a, a varied experience. So myself, I came from a developer background, so that gives me a lot of empathy or, um, or, or understanding about what mm-hmm. developers go mm-hmm. through. It also gives me a little bit of technical chops to be able to sort of be a bullshit detector and sort of say, ooh, that doesn't sound quite right, or like it gives me, you know, a, a, enough information to be a little bit dangerous, but, but you know, I, I know that I'm not in depth, or I, I know I don't have the, the, the level of technology 
um, knowledge at this point is, that I used to, but at least I, I have an understanding. So when someone is talking tech to me, then I, I can, you know, I can understand what they're saying and, and move forward. Yeah, and you can help them flush out risks and things they may overlook, right? You can challenge their thinking in a good way, not, not criticizing, but saying, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? Your team and the clients as well, and by that identify things that may go wrong, dependencies, and all, all these things. Well, and, and also translate text speak into plain English for the client. A lot of times that's something that I do. You know, we might be talking about CICD, Kubernetes, clusters on the back end, and a lot of stuff like that, and I might need to, to explain, okay, this is why continuous delivery is important, this is why you want it. Learn how to communicate well. Mm -hmm. Project management is kind of a lonely job because you, usually there's only one of them on a team. And then maybe similar to a business analyst, yes. uh, sometimes you're, multi you're more likely to have multiple business analysts, I think, than a delivery manager on a team. But you know you are kind of there, and you, what that means is that you really need to be good at soliciting feedback from your team members mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. when you're making decisions about how best to move forward, you need to be a really good listener, number one, because if you're not able to listen to your team teammates and uh, get that feedback and listen to the client and whatnot, you know your your perception or your mental model about what's currently going on is going to be skewed and you might make bad decisions or say something stupid and and really that's not your intention. You, you don't want to do harm. <laughs> well, it's also if you, I would imagine, if you go off on one on your own and you're like, I know best and I'm doing this, even if you were right, you will alienate your team, right? So it's important to listen to people and be inclusive and even if they just confirm what you were thinking anyway. I think that's a, maybe, how, how, how do you work with your team on a, on a, on a daily, daily basis? Is there anything about like, you know, uh, listening to people and, and how do you, do you find a balance line between extremely needy people and, uh, you know, driving delivery? Is there any skill in, involved in? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, you have to have a good feel for your team. I mean, there's different, Every, every team member is different, and I think it's super important to have um, a good relationship with everybody on your team. I think one of the advantages of having, you know, managing a smaller team is that you can really have that one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. Yes. And, and having feedback sessions and one-to-one, -one, going out for coffee, having that, that relationship is really great. I, I have to admit that when, when some team grows to a certain size and it becomes too big or you have a lot of offshore locations, that becomes really difficult to have that personal relationship and, and to even, you know, really have that understanding about what motivates people in your team. And that does make it harder to manage at, at the mm -hmm. end of the day. So, you know, I do prefer working with smaller teams where I can have that direct, you know, hey, you know, how's it going? You know, hopefully everything's going okay, even personal issue or whatever. Yeah. And just being, you know, really friendly <laughs> because you know, at the end of the day, you have to trust each other and building that trust is best done. And happy people deliver better work, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Um, a question I have is, you and I have both seen project managers um, who are just box tickets, right? They, they have their end charts, maybe some junior even updates those. They just follow the plans and they have to-do lists and they tick up. They never really do any actual work. And, and I think it should be clear by now that we don't think that's what a delivery lead is about and what they should be doing. And that doesn't necessarily add value. How do you 
how you think about yourself, how you prevent yourself from becoming a bureaucrat and a box ticker. Because like I mentioned, it's easy to fall into that trap, especially if the projects become complex and big. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I want to say that I think traditional project management methodologies still apply. You know, I don't care if your background is Waterfall, Prince2, uh-huh. whatever, Scrum, Agile. Like, you're still managing risk. You're still uh, managing dependencies. You're still uh, doing status reporting. You're still doing people management, stakeholder management, and, and all those pieces and driving delivery. So, so a lot of those things, it doesn't matter what methodology mm-hmm. you're using. So from, from one perspective, knowing those tactical things and be able to deliver those is, is still really important. So, yes. so, so knowing that foundation of skills is super important. Mm-hmm. But, but like you say, I think it's the, the soft side of things is what is just as important as, as those actual, actual box-ticking things. So understanding how the team works, understanding how relationships work, understanding how stakeholders will react to something, understanding the politics of the situation is another really important thing. It's a good trait to have, is to know when to shut up and not say things, but also know when you need to press something and really drive a point home. And I've seen you, which is a really interesting work, because we've worked obviously together and um, for quite a while now, and I've seen you be very outcome-focused and delivery-focused, right? You want to... It seems like your main interest is in getting something out of the door where that is valuable and doing the right thing. Whereas I've worked with, this is more a couple of years ago, with other project managers who were um, focused on delivering along a plan or delivering within a framework. Is, is my perception right that that's how you think about things? Or? Yeah. I mean, the, the proof's always in the pudding. Delivering, like that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point your team's working is to get something out the door and deliver it. And, and as early and as often as possible getting that value out the door. So yes, very delivery focused. I think that's really the guiding light, right? If you're not working towards delivering something, then you're really not doing the job. And would you agree that you couldn't, if we're honest, care less about the plan you've just created if the plan needs changing and needs total changing because you have just found something out that changes context? That's exactly your job, right? Oh, yeah, it's yeah. not adhering to a plan that you have done in the past, and the plan is just a, a relatively irrelevant thing that helps you on the way, right? I would say one of the big traits is you can't be dogmatic about it, right? And you have to look at the situation. You know, you really need to pay attention. I, I can't stress that enough. I think that's so important for delivery managers to be continuously paying attention and don't get attached to a methodology or a way of thinking or you know a thought that you have you really just need to be continuously paying attention about the situation at hand that day so really what it what it means is you, you almost need to wake up every day and be like what do i actually know like i think i know these things but what do i actually know what is the actual status of this project is there something bubbling under the surface that i haven't addressed and you need to really pay attention to that and take it head on and start managing it as early as possible before uh, small issues become really big ones. How do you handle a day-to-day life? Because again, I've seen you jump on a project from sorting some compliance stuff out from in one moment to helping team unblock some DevOps work to the next moment, think about feature delivery or the client has changed their milestones. How do you, because I think in the past with waterfall delivery, it, it was easier in the sense that you had a plan and you'd follow that plan and then you do a change request. So everything was a bit slower, right? It, 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 it seemingly makes it easier. You're 
overall delivery isn't as good, that no question. But in an agile world, how do you, how do you, I guess, prioritize your work? How, how do you know what to focus on in a world where things are constantly changing, constantly shifting? How do you not get confused? Well, you know, if you have a good handle on what your milestones are coming up and what the risks of the project are, it becomes really easy to identify the things like, okay, these four things need to be in place for, for me to meet this milestone. Maybe milestone B, there, there's a lot, lot more risk there, so you might need to look at that earlier on, right? And you need to start putting the wheels in motion to sort of look forward and, and look at that. So. As far as prioritizing in my time, you know, there, there's just the, the day-to-day, you know, firefighting of sort of like, we need to figure this out so we can just get the, the next uh, feature out the door, yep. and because, you know, the feature's been prioritized by the product ownership or, or whatever, and you just need to unblock that feature. So, un- unblocking things is probably one of the, the highest priority things, but you also have to have that, that long-term view where you're looking to unblock something bigger that's coming down the line where you need to line up a lot more dependencies for and how do you make sure the kind of the hygiene stuff happens so we're onboarding James today you know he needs to be onboarding all those different systems or you know I'm coming your way and like dude I think this or that needs looking at there is some something wrong with requirements or we need a meeting with these stakeholders you know all the hygiene stuff that that, that happens behind the scenes you need to do it it's not that exciting it's not high priority but it needs to happen anyway how, how do you handle that in, because it's easy I think to just postpone some of that stuff and then at some point it becomes a problem yeah so I, I think if you're working with a well run team a lot some of that hygiene stuff is just built into the, the sprint planning right so you might have sprint nice. planning yes. you have daily stand-ups you have retrospectives uh, you have you know showcases and that sort of thing and that, that's going to feed back in to some of the, a lot of the hygiene stuff, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I do think the daily standup is probably a really good touch point to sort of really assess the day and sort of look at. You go around and somebody's blocked on something. Okay, how can I help? And again, it's that sort of leadership thing. Is sort of like how how can I best help here? And, and you, you can't always get it right. You know, sometimes you don't get it right, or sometimes maybe you prioritize your time wrong. But you you need to. That's why you need to keep constantly aware of what of what you're doing when to cut something off and then and then don't hesitate to to cut off going down the wrong avenue when you you need to focus on something else how do you tell team members to fuck off if they want something that's really not important right now in in the nicest way but sometimes i think you have to do that right where you're like look dude i I appreciate for you this is important but in the grand scheme of things how how do you handle that i I think basically what you just said (laughs) i i I, I think i have really no problems like sort of saying like you know I, i just don't think this is important and like you say give a reason for it but it doesn't mean that it won't be important in the future right so I think it's really important to acknowledge somebody okay, and, and, okay. And, and acknowledge their thoughts and, and not just completely dismiss people and, and let them make the case. Mm-hmm. But you can also say, like, we have these other five things that are going on right now and we might have to revisit this. I hear what you're saying, you know, but that's the thing. Another thing I, I really want to touch on, too, is a, as far as a, a trait of project managers, and this might be an interesting thing to debate, I guess, is I think... You have to have a gut feel for what you're doing. You, you, sometimes you do have to follow your gut, and and I, I think I, I think I think that people maybe want it, want it to be more formulaic and want it to be like if I follow Scrum verbatim, then I will never have to make a, a bad decision or or really think about it. And it, and that's that's not true. I mean, a lot of uh, project management is anecdotal. What worked with you in one project may not work in the next project. Yes. Or one approach. 
you know, you have a completely different set of people, a completely different team, a completely different approach is required. So what you really need to do is collect a, a toolbox of, of approaches and experience, and then you need to sort of say, oh, you know, something's not quite right here. You, you need to kind of, you need to, if something in your gut's saying something's not right, I'm not comfortable with this, you need to acknowledge it and act upon it, not, mm. just, let it, not just let it fester, because that usually is when things go off the rails. I, I totally agree. I think there is a, a lot in there about, as you said, it's because it's anecdotal, there's a lot in about experience. So as you said, there are certain frameworks and methodologies that we can apply, but within those, we, we know we need to you know, look at risk and we know we need to look at priorities, but ultimately, how you prioritize and what risks are important, that's contextual. That changes from project to project, from day to day. And I don't think there is much you can do to really formalize this. There is just experience in there and, uh, and as you say, a bit of gut feel as well sometimes. Otherwise, it'd be, everyone would be a perfect, we could teach perfect project management. We can't. I think it's just not that straightforward. Yeah, I mean, another thing you can try to do is try to reduce the variables. So, you know, when you're trying to do problems, it's just kind of classic problem solving. What do I know and, and how can I do the next smallest thing to get to where I, yes. I want to go? Let's try not to take a bite out of the elephant or boil the ocean or whatever, whatever yeah. you want to say. Like, what is the next thing I need to do to get that thing done? Because, you know, it's that whole journey of a thousand miles. Yes, yes agreed. You need to reduce the variables down and, and just sort of look at what's right in front of you. So I think that that can be helpful to allow you to triage that kind of stuff. Definitely. As we talked about earlier, as a delivery leader, there is a lot of things to do and you could be pulled in all sorts of directions. So for me, when I was delivery leading, um, and I'm really not that good at it, um, it, the biggest challenge was like getting organized, knowing what to do, doing the right things and doing them in an efficient way. Are there any kind of tricks or tips you can share with, with our listeners? Yeah, so getting organized is a tactical piece of knowing your tools, so stuff like JIRA, or, or whatever project management tool you're using, you know, making sure it's up to date, making sure it's well organized, it's, it reflects the, you know, the status of your backlog and delivery and all that sort of stuff, and reporting is working and all, all that sort of thing. But a lot of what I do, and this is probably a, a trait of good project managers, is just to have general personal organization. So going back to, you know, how do you manage your time and that sort of thing. Is you, I, I, what I do is I, I typically use getting things done uh, type of methodology, and this is something maybe we can do a separate, a separate podcast on. I think that's a bigger thing, but maybe quickly just, yeah, just outline. Uh, the outline. level is, you, you know, you, what you do is you, you want to get all the things that you, you want to do in a single repository. Right. And then you want to sort of categorize the things you want to do next or things that you're delegating to other people or things you want to do someday or just file it away. So I use getting things done done in a combination of sort of an inbox zero type methodology to, to make sure that I know the things that I'm doing, I'm sort of prioritizing those things that I'm doing, and I also don't have the stress, I, I don't have the stress that I, I think I'm forgetting that I'm doing something, because I know ah, yes. if there's something I need to do, I'll, I'll send it to myself, and I'll prioritize it, and it'll be captured somewhere. So staying on top of things that are coming up at any point in time, that's, yeah. I guess, a key thing here, right? So, yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, I have to do a status report, and I need to talk to this person, and I need to prepare for a retrospective, and I need to talk to the one stakeholder or whatever. I need to travel somewhere or whatever. You know, all those things I have listed in, in my sort of repository, which in my case is my email. Okay. And, and I 
you know, they're all captured somewhere. I know where they are. I can prioritize them and act on them. Well, definitely have to talk about that thing you just said about the email because I think, as you know, I think that's like bonkers. <laughs> but you have been very successful with that. Yeah. So I think that would be very interesting for our listeners and to be honest to me as well. Once I understood how you were managing this via email, I think this is a really cool way of doing it. But it sounds a little bit crazy if you don't know what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, I know in the day of Slack and, and stuff, it <laughs> sounds bonkers, but actually... Um, I've worked it out over the years, and it seems to work well for me. Yeah. So, but we'll go into that at some point. Uh, another thing about getting organized as a delivery manager is you really want to cover your ass and document everything because there's always inevitably, inevitably going to be a point in time where you're going to be asked something or you'll be challenged on the way a decision you made or a way delivery happened, and you're going to need to produce documentation or go back in time and reconstruct how you got to that place. If things go well, hopefully that happens less often, but um, just sometimes things go wrong and you really want to go back and say, hey, this is when I made a decision. This is when the product owner decided we should go ahead with this. This is when we were transparent about this and the risks that were involved and these are the emails that were sent. And you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you should get all litigious about it, but you should have that in the back of your mind that you're trying to protect yourself, you're trying to protect your, protect your team, And, and the organization you work with, you know, you, you want to make sure everything's fairly represented. It doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes, but you really want to document everything. And it's really interesting to remember that even or especially in an agile methodology, that's important. Because sometimes we feel like, oh, agile is all about high trust, high empathy. We're all playing nicely. And yes, we are until we don't. And then, as you say, you, you want to have this narrative where you can go back to the client and say, These are the reasons why we did things. You agreed here, or we, we made you aware of this. That, and and it's, it's, this is not about messing someone up or, or fucking someone over. This is just to be able to play the story back and move on from there. Yeah, But, exactly. as I say, you, you need to have your story straight. Yeah, um, because you know, sometimes you want to do a retrospective over uh, something that went wrong or a timeline. And it's just good to have that documentation there. Yeah. And I think also, do you think... I mean, I've seen this a number of times in our last project where we made a decision, we had more discussion about it, we reversed the decision, we then reversed the decision again, and we went round in circles and circles and circles. And at some point, you have hit the same thing three times by now. And I think it's really good if you have the information in place to point out to all the stakeholders that you have been round in circles. And just present that and say, look, something is clearly going wrong here. We need to tackle this in a different way. And again, this, this is what this record-keeping helps you with, right? And that's not a bad thing at all. You mentioned there tools uh, you use. Um, let me ask you this first. Do tools matter? Does the specific tools you use matter? And if so or not, which tools do you prefer to use or you think everyone must use? The concepts are more important than the tools, but I think tools do matter in that you need to be able to use them. <laughs> because other, otherwise, things are just a lot more difficult in, in delivery. So probably the primary tool I use is things like email and Slack. I mean, it, it, you know, because you're communicating a lot, you're, 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 you're trying to work things out with different people. And, and so that's just knowing how to use those tools, if it's Gmail or whatever, just knowing how to use your email client and organize things in a way that makes sense, it's, it's important to put time and effort in it if that's where you're spending most of your time. Yes. You know, now then you have project management tools such as Jira or uh, formerly Mingle or Pivotal Tracker or something like that. A lot of those I don't actually have a, a huge love for. They don't actually 
sometimes mirror the way I want to run a project, mm -hmm. and then sometimes the, the tool itself is dictating the way that they you have to you, work. They, that you have to work, yeah, and that's yeah. not the way you want to work. And and I have to you know admit that I've, I've had struggles with Jira in the past with that because it kind of doesn't have that extra level, and unless you pay for it, you always need you know three levels or four levels or something like that, and you only kind of get two. So, so I, you know, I, I think uh, actually the former uh, product by ThoughtWorks Mingle worked really well. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. they just continued it. Um, uh, so, if, if anybody out there is running Mingle, please do release as an open source pro project. Um, it would be great because I'd like to use it again. But because it had the flexibility to create your own sort of hierarchy chains um, in in a, in a way that Jira doesn't. I think there's an interesting point you just said there around. Uh, the flexibility of tools and, and I think you just need to be aware of what do you want to use a tool for, the constraints and the overheads that come with the tool, right? So generally speaking, a lot of the tools are kind of the same and it doesn't matter really. Um, but, you know, if a tool becomes a problem for you because like what we found with Jira, it's just a, a pain at the moment the way they set it up to, to, to just manage it behind the scenes then maybe you should be thinking about using something different. Or if you have a tool like Slack or Skype or Zoom um, and you can't video conference properly because your audio quality, audio quality sucks, then maybe, again, that is something that is a reason to move on to another tool. So I think it's, it's, it's more about using the tool to make your lives easier and why it doesn't maybe consider something else. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to sort of being aware of what your day-to-day, don't force something that's just not going to happen. Right? Yes. It's just not working. Don't force it. But at the same time, you have to be practical, right? Like if the whole client, if the client's like you have to use cloud-based Jira and that's the only choice that you have, well, that's probably not a fight worth having, at least not, not in the beginning of a project and, and maybe ever because, you know, at the end of the day, one tool is maybe just as good as the other and you might have to work around a few things, but that's just the reality of, of project management. That, that is a really good point, actually, um, that the clients have certain constraints, but at the same time also I think it's really important to understand who is the actual user of a tool. So quite often I think um, organizations think that the, user, that the main user of Jira should be senior management to get an idea of progress, whereas I think Jira is for the development team to manage their work. And I think you need to be really, really clear who, who is the, the, the main stakeholder or the main user of a tool and optimize the tool for those people and not abuse the tool and force someone, as you said, into the process of, of working that actually doesn't really suit them and, 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 and makes their lives much easier. Yeah, and then, then that kind of gets actually an overlap in, in your type of role as a product owner um, and delivery management is that when you're communicating with senior stakeholders, you, you kind of want to use roadmaps and you want to use more abstract, larger concepts about your, your status. You don't want to necessarily be saying, you know, team A is delivering 10 points a week, and team <laughs> exactly. B is delivering 20, and team B is better than team A. Well, it's all relative. So, you know, you don't want to, like, be, be fighting, you know, in the weeds, you know, with senior management about the productivity of, of these low-level teams that can be optimized other ways. Yep. You want to be talking in, in, in higher-level roadmap terms. I mean, there's other things, too, is, uh, tools as far as, just having a, a, a sort of arsenal of templates. Yeah. So, you know, making sure you have roadmap plans or project plans or status report templates uh, or risk uh, issue dependency, you know, raid, raid logs, 
that sort of thing. It's good to just have some of those templates that you kind of build up over time in your back pocket so when you spin up a new project, you can kind of pull one of those out and just sort of kind of set up a project in one go. So it's, it's good to have those, those templates. And, and these are largely the same for every project, right? I mean, these are easy because they, they, they don't change that much from project to project. No, no. Yeah. You know, again, most project management is the same. Yeah. <laughs> and, you're, and, and even you're probably going to start a project the same way every time. It doesn't mean that you won't deviate from that, from the way you run it, but, you know, and then you'll develop more and more tools and different approaches and things like that. But it, but it is good to have that feedback loop of, you know, if you do develop a template or, or a log or something like that, then keep it in your back pocket for next time. Correct, yes. Let's talk a little bit about, like, you know, we said earlier that you see your role as facilitating, unblocking, making things easier for people to deliver. I think a big part is, like, how to have the right team to do the job. Um, how do you go about building teams? Because I assume, as part of the delivery lead role building, composing teams is a big part of your job, right? Yeah, I, I, if not the biggest, really, because oh, okay. they're the ones doing the work. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you want good people that can work well together, right? And, and because really you want them to be self-sufficient enough to really run themselves. You know, the, the best thing you can do as a delivery manager is kind of work yourself out of a job <laughs> yes. and not have to manage a team. You, need to, you, need, you want to be managing the project and reducing the risk and removing the blockers. So having the right people in place is very important. Yeah. So, so that's, that, that's initially having team selection being high quality. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I'm fortunate enough to be working with organizations that sort of do a lot of that for me by, by selecting you know, only good employees. Recruiting the right people in the first place. Right yes. In the first place, yeah. you know, because um, if you have one bad apple, it, it can spoil a lot of things. Yeah, and, and and I think that's the other piece is that you have to recognize if, if somebody a team member is not working, and it may not be a, any fault of their own. It might be personality conflicts. It just might be working in a different way that they're they're, they're yeah. not used to or they don't like to work in. You know, there's a lot of reasons something might break down. I think you have to be really upfront about that and you know cut people free from a team or you know give them the opportunity to, to work on something else and, and not. You know, you want to make sure you're, you're, kind of, you're, you're keeping an eye on the morale of the team and the mix of the team. But I think we should also say, because maybe what you just said, and I totally agree with that, sounds maybe a bit harsher than you would act in reality, I think. Am I, am I correct in saying that if there is a, a colleague who isn't performing as well as they should, or we know they can, you would help them to improve yeah, yeah, the work yeah. in a better way, right? Yeah, I guess I'm not necessarily talking about an individual performance. I guess I'm more talking about... Um, where a team, a team member wants to work in a different way than than the team's working, and if if, if you can't resolve that, yes. then maybe it's just best to, to. Now, now there is the other piece of it, which is what you said is sort of like if somebody's actually underperforming, and you recognize that, then yes, you you need to have one on ones with that person, sort of you know do a feedback thing where you sort of say, you know, this is the this is what I'm observing, this is the effect on the team. Uh, at least this is what I perceive the effect on the team being, and then talk that out and coming up with a remediation plan or or whatever comes next. But yeah, you, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. You, you have no idea what is happening in people's personal lives or it's happening externally. Well, even in the teams, in, in, within the teams, right? You, yeah, you yeah. observe from the outside to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And people have their own things going on, and you know, sometimes you just need to talk that out. And, yeah. and uh, you know, going back to the listening thing, sometimes you 
you are just a confidant, and and, and that's why it's, it's so important to have one-on-ones with people. I think that's probably the number one tip as a delivery manager is set aside time to have one-on-ones with people because that's really where a lot of this work's done. That's really a lot of this understanding about how these team dynamics are playing out, what's concerning people, and to hear about that early on and, and to really be able to help people and, and be that servant leader, you need to have these one-on-ones with people. So here's a question. I've um, recently, I don't know why, but uh, become a little bit of agony aunt for some of, of, of my or our colleagues. Um, and that's kind of very flattering that they come to you and they voice their work issues, private issues, concerns they have about their career and all that kind of stuff. And especially maybe if you're a bit older as well, younger colleagues come to you and they're like, hey, can you become a mentor and stuff? And that's all really cool, but at the same time, it can be draining and, and it can suck energy out of you. And especially if you as a delivery lead have like a team to look after. How do you how do you handle that? Do you have any tips how you... Well, I guess... I, I don't mind, like, what I, I kind of do is look for trends in, in some way. So, like, if I'm having one, sadly, I hadn't, our, our, our previous project kind of grew to the point where I wasn't really able to have one-on-ones with everybody, and then I think it did kind of suffer for that, so I'll hold my hand up there. Well, and, yeah. and, 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 but it just kind of shows, it shows the importance of it. Yeah. That when, when I do set aside, you know, time, and, and what I used to do is I literally would block out time every sort of three weeks three weeks kind of spell about right. Like two weeks seem too often and four or five weeks seem too too far away. Great. So, so you know, I, about every three weeks I, I would put uh, something in a calendar, specifically in everybody's calendar I'd have one-on-ones with and just block out like nearly a day or a half a day or whatever uh, of just one-on-ones back-to-back. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's tiring. Yeah. But what you can start start seeing when you look at that is sort of trends. So, so maybe your delivery lead sort of brings it on, oh, I don't like uh, the way automated testing works. And then you might hear from a couple other people and you're sort of like, well, wait a minute, this is something that, ah, you know, something that, that's really affecting people or there's some dynamic there where, you know, someone's really confident about something. And then it's kind of it's interesting because you might hear something from one person and then if you have a one-on-one with, with uh, somebody else that they were talking about, you can kind of bring it up sort of behind the scenes, sort of like saying, you know, yes. oh, I heard that you're really interested in doing this, but, you know, other people are pushing back on that. Like, why do you think that is? Do you think that's true? Um, mm. and, and, you know, again, it's asking probing questions and leaving it open to the other person to, to feedback. So we've talked about personality trades. We've talked about, like, the tools you use and, um, you know, the teams, good teams are really important. I think we've touched on this earlier already that managing risk is a, is, a, is a key thing because this is where things go wrong, right? How do you go about, well, knowing whether, whether the things are that may trip a team up and then what do you do about them? Yeah, when we engage on a project, we usually have some sort of inception type phase or discovery phase with some inception workshops. And part of that is we build in a, a raid session or raises risks, assumptions, dependent uh, issues, issues. issues. <laughs> and we build a session in to specifically try to surface those because usually we're walking into a situation where there's an existing estate or there's an existing project running or there's a new project spinning up and, and, and it's replacing an old one that had issues. There's all sorts of, of, of things that can trip up a project. So you want to surface these risks really early. So we usually start out in discovery having a, a raid session and, and that is as simple as kind of like 
getting the stakeholders together, giving them some post-it notes and saying, hey, let's just, if you have any risks, issues, assumptions, dependencies, but concerns, you, put them up on the wall. Worried about it. Let's yes. put them up on a wall and let's talk, yeah. talk through them as a group. Mm-hmm. You know? And then ultimately what I like to do is I like to boil those risks into a risk log. So, yeah. so I actually have a risk register which is just kind of a good hygiene thing to do. It is, you know, kind of an old school thing to do, but it's also a good no, cover, cover, mean, your, cover your ass thing to do because ultimately you want to be able to take that risk register and review it on a periodic basis, maybe once every couple months or once a yes. month, once every couple months. It depends. And, and you actually go through those risks and you want to make sure somebody owns them. Yeah. You want to make sure that you have, either you accept them or you have a mitigation strategy um, that's in line with, you know, what the organization's yeah. thinking. And you want to make sure any actions happen that are recorded, and you want to be able to close them, or some risks turn into issues. So just just for clarity's sake, a risk is something that could happen in the future, and an issue is something that's currently happening. So that's the difference between a risk and an issue. Yes. So issues in some ways are more immediate because you, they're more reactive. You you have to do something now, uh, whereas whereas a risk can be sort of mitigated in the long term. Yeah. So, so, so having that risk log is, is pretty useful in going back to it. And then again, keeping on top of things on a day-to-day basis when risks, risk is risen through retrospectives or showcases or whatever, you know, make sure it gets fed back into the log. Mm-hmm. And one other thing too is that once you do surface those risks, you want to make sure risky things get addressed earlier in a project. So yes. you might have a backlog and you might have you know, a few features that are hot button features and whatnot, but you might want to do some of the riskier ones mm-hmm. earlier on because you want to remove that risk. You, you know, again, it's about kind of reducing the variables. You might want to play a spike or something to sort of say, how am I going to prove out this technology or reduce that risk to de-risk the stories? And this is maybe more something that you, you know, again, is in the product owner wheelhouse, but... From a delivery perspective, you want to reduce risk early. That, I totally agree. I think the, the problem with this is that as human beings, we quite often want to do the quick wins first and postpone the hard stuff, which means that quite often we postpone risky things. And that, as you said, is not the right approach. You should do the risky things early because if you already fuck up there, then maybe there is no point in proceeding or you think you are on track delivering something and then right before go live you find out that you can't integrate into this important system and everything is out of the water. So you're absolutely right. You need to do these things early and there's lightweight techniques of mitigating risks and as you said, proof of concepts, you know, these kind of things. Um, but I think, I personally, I feel like I have to force myself to do the risky, the hard things first. It's, it's, it doesn't come naturally, I think. I think what comes na- more naturally is to do the easy stuff first. And, and, that, and that's always the, the sort of um, misconception people have is sort of like, oh, if something's short or something like that, that you should, oh, you know, it only, it's only going to take me a day to do that. So, you know, I'm just going to do that next. And, and I think that yes. because you want, you want the quick win, right? You want, you want to shoot, put one in the win box and you want to be able to say, hey, we're making progress by doing that short, easy thing. But it may not be the right thing to do. Even something that takes one day and a risky thing takes five days well, maybe you should get it started on that risky thing and, and take, take that, those five days you know, hit on the chin, but at least you'll, you'll, you'll know whether you have something viable at the end of it. And, and, and you know, again, playing spikes and things like that, doing throwaway code and just sort of saying, okay, I have this really risky feature 
and I don't know how this integration is going to work with this technology. Well, just playing exactly. with Spike, which is a, a Spike's a small piece of work um, that that you you do that might be a throwaway piece of work that just to prove out um, you know the technology works. So you know you just want to prove that the integration works. You're not necessarily writing production code. You're just proving that it works, and that then becomes information that you can put into the story later on to, to, as acceptance criteria or or an approach to. I mean, this is product people. We talk a lot about like forming a hypothesis and doing an experiment as part of delivering something. And I think there is a hypothesis that you know we can easily integrate with this system, and then you run an experiment of whether you can actually do that. And the only thing you might do is you know, integrate with the database and bring up a single field and show it to someone on a screen. And that may be your entire experiment. And yes, you know you can do this, and then you can get on with, with the, the normal life of delivering something. Yeah, and again, it's that thought about, I want to break down the variables. I want to get, the, reduce the variables. So, you know, what I know and what I don't know, yeah. you know, gets, gets thinner. You know, I, I want to know more and, and make decisions, you know, based off things I actually know. So we've already touched on retrospectives, um, but I would like to understand a little bit more how does your day-to-day -day work look like at a very top level, and then how does your work over the, 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 the cadence or along the cadence of a, of a project look like? What, what are the things you do? What are the things you get involved with? Yeah, so up front in a project, again, we start out with usually discovery inception, so the delivery lead or someone like that would probably be involved in yeah. that because, again, you're you're trying to figure out what, what the project is you're trying to deliver and have a good, a good basis for that. Um, then you sort of transition to a phase of actually delivery where you get more into an inner to development phase. So that's where you start playing your sprints um, and you start actually delivering things. In between there, you might do sort of an iteration, iteration zero type thing. Where you wrap up and check your team up, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Put together tooling, CI, CD pipelines, all Correct. that sort of stuff and have the team actually figure out you know, the method they're going to use to deliver, the yes. technologies they're going to use to deliver. But once you're in an iterative process, you probably start with maybe sort of more of a release plan that might come out of discovery where you're looking at your minimum viable product or your first release, second release, that sort of road mapping thing. So once that's facilitated, and again, this is working with product owners and the stakeholders and, and, and the delivery lead isn't necessarily running those sessions, but they're definitely sitting in those sessions as a stakeholder because um, whereby the backlog is kind of the, the menu of things we want to do, the feasibility of actually doing it is where the delivery manager kind of comes in and, and they need to coordinate the effort. Yes, and I think you're also kind of, in the nicest way, enforcing that all these things happen because I think, I've realized this myself, that in the, in the heat of the fight when you deliver daily on a day-to-day -day basis, it's very easy to skip a demo, skip a retro, just because you have more important things to do. And then you are eight weeks into the project and you haven't done any of those good things. So I think it's, it's kind of, I guess the delivery is sometimes the, the guardian of best practices, right? And you make sure that all these things that really need to happen as hygiene factors do happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the delivery is an annoying guy that puts stuff in everybody's calendar <laughs> yes. on a regular basis um, to, to make sure that those things happen. And it is really important to, to make sure that those ceremonies happen. So uh, a delivery manager is going to make sure like something like a sprint planning happens. It might not be true that that delivery manager facilitates it. It's probably going to be a business analyst playing stories back to the team. There might be some estimation or something like yes. that. 
but the fact that it happens is kind of on the delivery manager. Delivery manager is usually facilitating some sort of daily stand-up, um, and that includes you know making sure it's short, making sure people don't waffle mm-hmm. on, making sure people stay on track, uh, making sure any blockers are, are addressed afterwards, and that sort of thing. So, so very much facilitator role there. Delivery manager usually runs retrospectives, but that's not always true. I mean, it's kind of good to have different team members run retrospectives, and everybody should really have a hand in that, but to make sure it happens and, and whatnot, and also kind of the MC for showcases. So, so you, you do a lot of facilitation, a lot of MC type work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you are that person that does make sure the wheels are turning and, and smoothly and efficiently. And, and it's really about feeding those efficiencies back in. So in retrospectives, you get actions out of that. You want to feed that back in the team and try to work more efficient. And I think this is a really good point, because what I've seen you do really well is that um, it's not just putting something in the diary, it's also thinking about like, okay, last time we did a retro this way, that didn't go that well. How can I do a retro this time to make it even better? And then, as I said, outcomes, not just assigning things and then ticking boxes if people have done stuff or not done, but really making things that are either actioned or, or sometimes actioning with yourself, but, but really helping kind of drive these actions and, and, and you know really add value beyond just being a PA for everyone. That's, that's not what this role is about at all. It's, it's no. adding far more value. Yeah, and, and that's a good point about actions. Like you really want to put an owner on an action. And, and sometimes when you, when you have an action, sometimes the action might be too grand to actually ah, yes. action. So what you really need to do is break that action down mm-hmm. into what the next thing is. So if, the, if the, the action is to revamp your CICD system, <laughs> yeah. That that's not a feasible action. Nobody can no. own that. That but 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 somebody can own the next act, the next step of, you know, setting up the meeting to, to be able to start tackling that. Yes. So so you know it's it's like chunking it down and and, and giving an owner to that action. That's that's an important thing to do. So how does one become a delivery lead, scrum master, or more specifically, how did you get into that role? Yeah, so I got into it because I was a developer and there was a need on the team for some sort of project project management. I, I didn't really know what project management <laughs> like was. Yes. So I, I was working at university at the time, so I'm like, I want to be a project manager or like play that role. Yes. So I literally went to a project manager class where they, they taught uh, Basically, I was in there with the people constructing buildings and doing all sorts of ah, very, very waterfall-based yeah. things, and, and, and a lot of it was focused on learning Microsoft Project, um, so Gantt charts and that sort of thing. And it was enlightening. You know, I got a big, thick binder out, out of it that I probably never necessarily looked at again, but it, it did open my eyes to like, oh, okay, wait a minute, this is a thing, and there is a method to it, mm-hmm. and, you know. And again, it's about managing risks and all these things. It doesn't matter what if you're building a building or if you're building software, you have these common concerns. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I tried to apply that to software, with with very success because I think it was too heavyweight. You know, you know, agile is a, is a better way to go because you need the advantage of software is that you can keep iterating on things where you can't do that when you're building a you know, an apartment building or, 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 a, or a house or something. So once I, once I, once I got that experience and, and I, then eventually I ran my own company, I was able to sort of bring in that business side of running a company in with sort of, you know, where I had goals that I had to get done yes. with kind of some of this development and project management, I brought it all together and then, and then you, could, you, you kind of evolved out of there. Mm-hmm. 
So, so eventually I got into Agile through a, a small bespoke uh, software development house that I was working at um, in Winchester, and that's where I kind of was exposed to Agile, and then and then it took it from there. So, so you learned basically okay initially by this course you did, but then by doing and by working with other good people, what do you make of? Um, Certifications. You, we all know there is the, the Scrum Master certification. There is Safe. There is uh, Prince to PMI. All that kind of stuff. What do you make of those? Are they well, helpful? Important? I mean, I am Prince to certified, uh -huh. or at least I was. I don't know. <laughs> it expires, doesn't it? Expires with more money. <laughs> but but I, I I don't have any problems with that. I mean, you know, uh, we were actually just talking earlier that you know. Having that culture of continuous learning is really important, yeah. anyways. And you know, if you who care, you know, who cares about pigeonholing? Like, oh, I don't do waterfall, or I don't do this or that, or I don't do Scrum. I only do Lean and Can. You know, that's just a, a stupid way to look at the world. I think, yeah. you know, how are you going to do agile transformation if you don't understand where somebody's coming from in a, in a waterfall sense? Agree. And and you know, so like having the important thing is having the continuous learning. Maybe having the, the the actual cert, you know, the actual certificate at the end of it is less important to me than. I think it helps possibly getting a job in some okay, cases yeah, yeah, on I, the CV, yeah, but yeah. yeah. I mean, there there are definitely jobs that that are asking for Prince two certification. So don't get me wrong. Maybe having having some of those key ones and and, and being selective about that. Don't don't just get any random you know, certification from Joe Smith. Actually <laughs> think about the jobs that you're trying to target and get those actual, like, you know, Prince2 is an actual thing in the UK at least. Yeah. And in, in America, I think it's PMP. Like those are actual real things that people actually, yeah. you know, put stock in. Um, so, you know, those are ones that you might want to shoot towards. But those also cost money and, and whatnot. So if you can get your, if you can get your, your, um, Your company to pay for you to go on the training and pay for certification. Yeah. I definitely suggest doing that. But um. I mean, I should actually say it's interesting what you said about learning because I did a DSDM certification a couple of years ago, longer now, and most people don't even know what DSDM is, and uh, it's, it's not highly recognized. But just doing the training course and being exposed to new ways of thinking, and I'm referring a lot back to DSDM just in my day-to-day -day work because it's a really good approach. It's a halfway house between, to a certain degree, between uh, super agile like, like XP and Scrum and then kind of something which is a bit more waterfall. And that opened my eyes to how you can bring the two worlds, waterfall and agile, together. Um, so to your point, sometimes it's not about the, the final outcome, your, your stamp or your seal of approval, but it is the you know being inspired, getting new ideas and, and looking at things in a different way. So if, if you had a junior uh, project manager, scrum master, and they just want to become more experienced, what would you say to them? What's the best way of getting to a level like where you are? Like where you're like, oh, I, I think experience, it, it really does come down to experience. Um, like so many roles, it's seeing a lot of things. So having that sort of journeyman attitude. I think if you're mm. repeating the same day, you know, over for 10 years um, in a row, you're probably not going to get a lot out of that. I think some of the advantage I have being in consultancies is that I see a lot of different verticals. I see a lot of different yes. types of projects. I, you, you take a lot away from all those experience. And it doesn't mean that you're, you're never going to make mistakes, make mistakes all the time, or I figure out better ways to handle things. But... 
you know, you got to start somewhere. Like if you are a developer and you want to get into it, or if you're a BA and you want to get into it, or if you're interested in it, you, you have to try it. You have to take the role or even just try to manage your own time at home. Like just, you know, <laughs> actually just think about delivering, you know, at the end mm. of the day, that's what it's about. It's like, how can I do this better, like more efficiently and better? And you have to have that mindset of doing that and getting the experience doing it however you can and just having that mindset of like not getting too attached and having that attention mindset. Just keep practicing that and getting the experience in front of, uh, of customers. And, you know, and, and there will be hard times where you're going to get in a situation where things didn't go well and you, you're going to defend yourself and you're going to say something stupid, and you're going to make those mistakes, and that's okay. It's that's okay. Great. Every, everybody that, right? does that, right? Yes. Like we, I've done that. I'm sure you've done that. Well, totally. Where you sort of like been overly defensive, and it's really easy when you're younger to be overly defensive about things. And I think as you grow older and more experienced, you, you become less defensive about it, and, you're, and it's more matter of fact. It's sort of like you did. You're doing the best you can with what you have. Correct. And, and, yeah. So I, I yeah. think I think so. It's just practice and experience. Um, like, like anything and else. I don't think there's a problem with making as I said with making mistakes as long as you don't repeat them you learn from them and next time you're trying to do better and just keep going from there so to wrap this up then Todd is there anything you think people should take away from this discussion yeah I think in closing I would say to use an old Zen proverb is you know this too shall pass it's a, it's a cigarette <laughs> yes it's just kind of a great statement because, you know, uh, the highs and the lows, you know, you don't want to get too attached with them because they'll pass. Things change. And it's not the end game. And it's really good to have that mindset as a delivery manager, not to just always look at right in front of you, the tactical thing. But, you know, things will pass. And, and that's a good thing. Yes, I agree. So, so with that, I'd say, you know, if you're interested in being a delivery manager, give it a go. It's... Um, it can be rewarding, mm -hmm. and and it, it's fun too. So, give it a try. Let us know if you have any comments, questions, and uh, love to hear from you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's episode. Have a look at our show notes with related information and details on how to get in touch at thebarnup.com. We are listener-driven, so please do send us your questions, comments, and ideas for new episodes. We're both practitioners and are happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit burnupmedia.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit, but you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.